Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child who was born last December. So welcome to another episode of Startup Dads. I'm delighted to welcome Mike Townsend to the show. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about what makes you a startup dad? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have a son, a 10-month-old son, whose name is Leonardo Townsend, and he has been a handful uh, in a good way, but challenging as well. So yeah, one son, and then I've also been involved in a number of different startups, projects over the years, ranging across different industries and stages. And I also invest in startups and help coach other founders and run a company that helps startups find engineers. So very much in the startup world. I also went through uh, three different accelerator programs, uh, Techstars, Science, and uh, Launch Accelerator. So yeah, I kind of have dipped my toes in quite a bit of startups and just kind of getting into the father game, which is equally as challenging. <laughs> For sure. I mean, Mike, to be honest, when I was reading and researching a little about you, I, I couldn't find a part of the startup ecosystem that you haven't touched. So I suppose, could you talk to us a little bit about your journey through the world of startups? Like you've done so many things and lots of them really like not obviously connected at all. I guess, yeah, you're right. They're not obviously connected. I grew up in Connecticut, went to school for mechanical engineering, and then I moved to Singapore to work for Brookstone. Uh, the company that makes massage chairs. And I worked on their R&D department, research and development. And we were working on this one particular problem, which was that Asian kids, Chinese kids in particular, were getting stuck in this market. They were getting stuck in the massage chairs. So I worked on that and, and redesigned how that worked and lived over in Singapore for a year. And it was an awesome experience. It was really pretty entrepreneurial within the company of Brookstone. And then that was a contract. So that ended. I moved back to the States and I was very excited and set on moving to California. And, you know, California is where it's at, San Francisco, LA. So I sent a ton of emails, cold emails, and eventually got a job interview. And I worked at a defense company making radar systems in mechanical engineering. And this is like, startups really weren't a thing in 2010. So there was a little startup ecosystem, a little co-working space. You can think of it like, like WeWork prior to WeWork. And that's where I spent nights and weekends. And it was amazing. Most of my friends now, my close friends, are from that office that we would work together. And we started a number of different companies out of there. And yeah, I've, I've started my first company from that studio, a partner I met. And yeah, started the company started companies, raised money, sold companies. It's super cool. You know, we've not talked so much so far about the San Francisco ecosystem and the San Francisco mindset, actually. So I'm really interested to know, what was it like going in there? What characterizes, what causes startups to kind of thrive there? Yeah, it's a good question. I lived in Los Angeles for a few years when I first moved out to California. And that was a distant tier two city from San Francisco and the Bay Area generally. And then I moved up to San Francisco and I lived on 18th and Valencia, which is right in the heart of, of, of San Francisco, where, you know, every corner, there's like a coffee shop where people are trying to raise money. And it's a, you're completely immersed in it. It's a singular 
dimension of the city. And that causes a lot of strife and challenges, but also is caused incredible density of intellectual talent and build great companies. So if you feel called to be in a city where tech is exploding, or if you're in another industry, if you feel called to be in it, like Hollywood or Wall Street or DC, wherever, wherever it's at, go there when you're young or go there, period, and experience all there is. And from that point, you make connections and you learn from people. When I was there, I went to a lot. I met a lot of people. It's pretty remarkable when you get density, what kind of magic can happen. Makes total sense. And I think what people are talking a lot now about, you know, San Francisco, there seems to be a bit of an exodus in the face of the pandemic and the, you know, the sky high cost of living. I don't know if whether you've got any thoughts on that. Uh, having been there, having lived it up, whether you think that a new San Francisco can emerge or whether you, you, whether you think that actually it's a dispersion across people working on the internet rather than working in cities now. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I think what you said is true. I think the COVID has accelerated the trend that people are working remotely. So being in a city that's dense and expensive isn't as beneficial to a lot of people who already have jobs and work for larger companies. San Francisco is the exodus in particular is a combination of politics as well as uh, economics and the trend of COVID and going remote. I think the politics unfortunately has accelerated that in a negative way. I think there's far less building than there should be. So I, I wish there was more growth. Like when you live in a city and you look out and you see cranes and buildings being built, that's a good sign. When I was in San Francisco for years, you don't see that. And so if a city is exploding and people aren't building, you know, there's going to be major friction. So I suppose I want to flip the question to the dad side of your life now. And you went out there, you lived it, right? So you were one of those people that really went out, absorbed it, seems to have catalyzed the direction of your life and a journey you've taken that's amazing. How do you feel about your son thinking about the opportunity where work will be done, you know, potentially just in front of a screen remotely and digitally versus actually, you know, the three-dimensional world that most of us have grown up in. Do you have thoughts on that? I'd question that assumption. I think that right now we stare at two-dimensional screens. We punch keys and move mouses. But I think realistically, not that long in the future, you know, our kids age, like if they're under a year, two years old, they'll just throw on the glass, you know, they'll just be in a three dimensional world where they move stuff around with their hands and maybe even their thoughts. And like that you could do from anywhere and that'll be completely plugged into the matrix. And that probably won't seem as stale. Like, you know, when you sit at a computer and you stare at a screen, it doesn't feel natural, but when you move around and you can interface with everything, uh, you know, I think that's, it's kind of interesting how that flips. There'll be new challenges with that, but that'll be a completely new dimension of interface for the for the internet. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And your point is really valid, right? Our kids being a year, less than a year, people talking about huge amounts of money and investment in augmented reality, virtual reality. I wasn't sure whether you were going to say, actually, we were going to be going back to living more three-dimensionally once the pandemic uh, recedes, which I think is true anyway. But I think your point is even remote work is not going to be the same, right? Yeah, my personal experience with the trending back on the pandemic is like art and food, the riches of life, seeing theater, seeing museums. I can't think how you that it would be beneficial to do those remotely. They become orders of magnitude more profound when they're in person in high dense cities. I live in Boston now and museums are open. I've gone to quite a few museums in the city. And I just think that that's, that's the, the gem of cities. You live in London. I mean, it has plenty of your fair share of, of art and uh, entertainment there. So that's, 
that's a real perk. We've definitely forgotten, I think, people who live in cities, all the things that make them great when you level the whole thing. And then people who are living out in the countryside with massive houses and those sort of things. But it's not a straight trade-off, is it? There's actually, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a proposal by the Saudi Arabian government for a, I think it's $50 billion project to build a hundred mile linear city. So they, they want to, oh, wow. have, you, have you seen this? No, I watched. I watched a, a good uh, presentation, basically outlining the theory behind the concept of a line. And apparently, there's been a few design cities that have done this. And it sounds ridiculous at first, and it may, in fact, be ridiculous. But the idea is that if you have an underground transportation system that goes in the direction of the line, everyone does have access to nature on either side. You know, you could just walk out your backyard and bam. It's an interesting idea to think about how we as humans just construct different arrangements as we evolve and build more technology. Yeah, for sure. We've not seen so much of technology, like high-tech technological manifestations in architecture, urban design in quite the same way, but that's a super cool uh, imagining of the future, right? Yeah, I'm curious to see how that goes. (laughs) That's a pretty trippy idea. And whether, you know, somehow there will be a division of goods. You know, there'll be a more desirable place to live on the line. Uh, and it almost sounds like a like a TV show the more you think about it. Yeah, it'll be an interesting psychological experiment as well if they end up building this out and doing it. Great. I mean, we've gone way off my script, but I really enjoyed that, um, <laughs> thinking about what the future of, of urban design could look like. I'd like to pull us back a little bit and talk to you about pivots, because you have really negotiated some crazy wild rides as part of the startups you've done. And I'm really interested in whether you could tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the pivots you've been through, how you navigated them. I think everyone deals with this at some point in their life, whether it's a career change, if you're working for a company or if you started a company and you need to pivot and change directions, or just if you sell the company, thinking about what are you going to do next uh, or shut it down? What are you going to do next? So these are all pivots of a sort. uh, And I've certainly been through a number of them. I mean, one in particular that comes to mind is when I started uh, a company called Home Hero, and we grew the team from two people to we had hundreds of caregivers working for us, so hundreds of employees. We had to change the business model because in the state of California, they regulated how home care could be managed. So we were effectively taking caregivers for seniors, people who take care of older people, and we were building a marketplace to find, hire, and manage these folks. And it was a lot of difficult regulation. I personally flew out to Washington, D.C. to talk to slash lobby the Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, a couple of times. And it was a really unfortunate situation. Uh, so we ended up pivoting the company entirely. And that was challenging. We had about $15, $16 million. We'd raised $23 million uh, in VC. We gave back about $7 million. And we renegotiated the cap table, liquidation preferences, laid off a lot of people, and effectively started de novo, brand new on a new concept. And yeah, that's a it's a bumpy road. Uh, but it also can be less bumpy if you're very transparent with everyone at every step along the way. One thing I've I believe quite strongly in now is that when you pursue the thing that's the most challenging with your full attention and full dedication the next step always reveals itself. So you don't have to see, this is a, a MLK quote, you don't have to see the full staircase to take the first step. And a lot of people get uh, anxious about not knowing what's gonna happen you know, at a year from now, two years from now. And 
the, the answer will reveal itself. You know, there will be people along the way that come and help you obtain whatever you're trying to do. If you can articulate your goals and why this is important to many people, clearly, it's amazing how people show up in your life. Totally agree. I think that is for all our listeners, one of the most <laughs> valuable, I mean, you're clearly a very experienced founder, one of the most valuable lessons I think you can take away if you're thinking about a startup. Because I actually think that it can be very hard to do what you've just said, to focus your attention on a single thing and do it without any equivocation. And, you know, even if you run a startup, actually, just the act of pursuing a single strategy well without distraction is incredibly difficult. Like things are coming up all the time. And, you know, if you're not profitable or even if you are profitable and you want to grow fast, you're naturally tempted to take as much opportunity as you can right? And I think your point about shining that light really brightly in a certain direction and actually things just following is is so important. We talk a lot at HX about focus and about the importance of focus. We find it hard to focus. We're all restless, energetic people at HX. When we do focus, things go more smoothly. There's always a spectrum. And I think the important thing is be aware of the spectrum. So on one hand, you can be laser focused and you can be, you know, push out everything else in your life but if the thing that you're focused on is not the thing that's valuable, what are you doing? And I think that mentality is fantastic. It can be very motivating if the thing that you're doing happens to be or is very beneficial and useful and you're the right person to do it. The other side of the spectrum is hedging. So this, I think, is particularly common today with everyone working remote. So the opportunities are remote. So you have a lot more opportunities to you. There's a lot more tools available. It's easier to start a startup than it ever has been. It's harder to grow one than it ever has been. You know, no coding tools out there. So it's like someone pitches you on an idea and you're like, well, let's work on it on the side. You know, someone pitches you another, let's work on that on the side. You know, maybe that'll take off. And you meet people who have like four side projects. The hedging, it's it's like molasses. You have too many and it just slows you down. So I think being aware of that spectrum allows you to consciously decide where you want to be in that spectrum at different points in your life. So when you're going through transitions, that's the time to hedge, like take those calls, explore those opportunities. But when you're on something and you're like, this is what I want to do, like say no to that shit. I think the number one thing successful founders do is they switch along that spectrum when they need to. Right. And I think you're absolutely bang on, right. They know when to put their foot to the floor or, or they've got the courage to try uh, and also when to back off. Yeah. And certainly I think there's also a psychological effect. I think some people are more, they thrive in a situations where they can be laser focused for long periods of time. And other people just thrive on having multiple conversations and exploring things simultaneously. I think of like a good personality type for a venture capitalist is the latter. You know, you kind of want the person who's like, they got 10 balls in the air, they're looking at different deals, they're networking with all these people. And kind of ironically, the startup founder is the opposite. It's like, you know, you run a company. It's like no to 90% of the things that come across your plate. It's a really fascinating thing, balancing that between investors being part of a portfolio and being the single person in charge of a business, right? It's a continual tension. So can I talk to you a little bit about your framework for changing direction then? Because I think the spectrum that you described there and thinking a little bit about your options is really key and super valuable advice. But then actually, how do you choose when to change direction? You've clearly built very successful businesses. You probably have had to make choices between leveraging the effort that you've already invested going, actually, you know what? No, it's time to change direction now. Otherwise, there's a risk of sinking. I think the first thing that comes to mind is there's different 
ways to be confident that you need to make a decision. Say, you know, in the example of there's hard reality, which is like I run a startup and we are out of money. We cannot operate. You know, we are done. So in that scenario, you know, you could fight and raise money and keep doing it, but you could also say maybe this is a sign for me to move on. Then there are more like softer interpretations of a, a reason to change, which is like I'm working at a job. I make decent money. It's fairly convenient, but I really don't like it at all. And then, you know, that's kind of a, a different motivation to change. So I think in the case of the necessary hard pivots, like I'm working on a company and in our case, regulatory wise from the government, they passed a law that says you can't operate as your existing model. So we're like, okay, this is a hard pivot necessary in one direction or the other. So it's forced upon you. And in that situation, I almost find it's easier. You know, the hard decision has been made for you. It's like you have to change, you know? And so then you just take inventory of what are we good at? What am I personally interested in? Which I think often gets under factored into the equation. On the other example, just to touch on that. So say you're working in a startup or at some company and it just kind of grinds you. You know, you just don't love it. You dread signing in every day. How do you start to discover what you would want to do? One great question is, what would you do if money wasn't an object? I think that's almost cliche in a way because it's so true. It's like, well, what would you actually do? Like, would you start a YouTube channel? Would you ride horses? Well, great. Then go teach at a riding school. You know, like, so I, I think that's a good question. And the world is, it's just abundant with things that are interesting. Yeah, I think your point is so valid. I mean, I came to the startup world relatively late, right? I was in my 30s. I had a very corny eureka moment about why I wanted to do this and why I thought it was important for, for me to do it and for the world to have a business like the one that HX is trying to build. I think changing direction, I think your point about actually really thinking about what you care about and what matters to you is really important. We We haven't had to really pivot so far, but I think one of the things that HX had to do is to plot a path through many, many choices that it has in front of us. We're just doing this now, actually, as we're working on the next phase of our growth. It's where do we want to end up, right? Like, not what do we want to do now? We want to do everything now, right? That's what we want to do all the time. That's just the characteristic of HXs and HX. But actually, where do we want to end up? Because that's a very different question. And that motivates a much clearer set of actions that we've got to do now. And I think you're absolutely right that you've got to actually think really about what deeply matters to you. And it's hard to do that. It really is difficult. I'm about 80% through this book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And this guy is a uh, philosopher, a psychologist, studied under Carl Jung and Freud. He's now passed, but he lived through the internment camps in Auschwitz and through World War II. The chances of escaping or living through one of these experiences was like 10%. So it was just the worst possible human experience you can imagine. And he writes about this and he's like, the people who get through it are the ones that have meaning in their life. They're doing this for something. Maybe it's for their child that they want to see. In his case, it was for a transcript that he wrote that he wanted to share with the world. Like That's what kept him alive because he had a message to share, which ultimately became this book. And finding that thing, it's not trivial. It's inner work. And I think a lot of it has to do with what did you suffer through as a child when you were younger that you want to help improve for the next people that go through this experience or people that are currently suffering. And it's amazing. You can actually feel your like heart get tugged at this direction. You know, it's like, oh man, when I was a kid, we didn't have food, right? That's my thing. And I want to, you know, that's not my thing, but that, if that's your thing, like you can be so 
passionate about that. So I think past traumas, past experiences of suffering provide real opportunity to find solutions, you know, find meaning. And this is the way we say this in startups is like, solve your own problem. That's the nice, simple way to say it. But that's effectively what it's alluding to is like, find your past trauma and find deep meaning in that and go and move in that direction. Awesome. <laughs> Talking of present and past traumas, uh, do you find any parallels with fatherhood? You know, I, the way I think about this is I've certainly pivoted several times in my approach to trying to get my daughter to sleep. Don't know whether Leo is a natural sleeper and he's just a dream baby and you've got the one in 200. Uh, so, you know, how do you think about that? You know, uh, oh, sleep, man. Yeah, that's the Achilles <laughs> heel. Oh, God. Uh, I, I, I don't I'm not the one that has the answer to this question, but it's like <laughs> I almost think it's the best parenting is the ones that just kind of they just kind of get through it. You know, it's not glamorous when you wake up for the third time at four in the morning and you're exhausted for multiple days on edge. But I've discovered, they say that like you parent your kid as much as they parent you. And it's amazing how my, in my experience, Leo, my son has found the cracks in my, in my persona. It's like, oh, you're tired. Oh, you're hungry. Oh, I'm going to scream and I'm going to have no reason for screaming. And you're just going to have to tolerate it. And it's like, man, I'm aware of like high agitation. Like this is a kind of frustration that I, I don't think I've ever experienced before. As a side note, my wife is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And one of the things they screen for when children come into the hospital is these particular kinds of bone fragmentations that happen when you shake a baby. So like shaking babies is not uncommon. And it's because of this like incredible frustration that happens. And I, I mean, I understand the psychology of that where I could not have understood it before. Uh, and I can see a situation in which, you know, you're stressed with money, you're having uh, issues with your, with your spouse and, you know, you're not getting enough sleep and your kid has some illness. Like you stack a few of these on top of each other and it's really, really challenging. Yeah, it's very true. My daughter, she was a month early and she slept like a dream for the first four months of her life. And I just described that as the greatest rope-a-dope that she ever pulled, right? And I thought this parenting thing is easy. What's the big deal? And then she had the four-month sleep regression and oh boy, mm. oh boy. Yeah, I thought setting up HX was hard. Turns out that was the easy bit of my life, right? So I suppose that takes me on to the question I want to ask. So Again, serial founder, multiple successful businesses and exits. How has startup life changed for you now you've got a little one to look after? How do you make it work? What are your your startup dad tips? Oh, man. I mean, in my life, the reality is we have a nanny that comes in during the day, three days a week, and then my mother comes up and helps the other two days. So somebody has to watch a baby. You know, there has to be like, and you could do it in groups, you know, where you have one in independence or daycare or something. But you can't just let them chill. There's no working while a baby is, you know, you no. can't work and watch a kid. So I think there's been enormous amount of stress and challenging situations for families who have kids that are home from COVID. Like you can't go to school, you're home. And what do you do? You know, you have to work. If you can't afford someone to come in, it's tough. But it's also great. I mean, we shouldn't highlight the negative too much. It really is amazing when they laugh and giggle and develop and grow. It's an absolutely miraculous thing to watch happen. You really don't have to do all that much as a parent. I almost think I joke with my wife that it's more about doing less bad things 
than it is about doing like heroic things. You know, just feed them, make sure they, you know, they got enough clothes. And yeah, it's one of those things that multiple parents with multiple kids probably learn this reasonably quickly that at the very beginning, I spent a huge amount of time watching my child when fundamentally, and I don't regret any of that. It was brilliant, right? I treasure those times spent with her. But uh, as you rightly say, babies broadly spend the first few months of their life just sleeping, sleeping, going to the toilet and feeding. That's about all they do. And like you say, it's about finding the balance of yeah, where you expend your efforts. I, I think there's also a reality that doesn't get acknowledged as much as it probably should, and that women do the most amazing thing that any human can do. Like giving birth and breastfeeding is just every one of us benefited from, you know, a woman's body. You know, we all came out of one and men just aren't, you know, you and I just, we can't be as useful in those early days. And so I think as a society giving space for that, whether it's like regulation around parental leave or companies acknowledging that this is especially challenging for women in particular, and they're wired differently, you know, as much as we talk about gender differences like this is there's a fundamental difference here and i've just fully seen that and have enormous amount of respect for mothers and to be mothers and people who support mothers yeah i, I remember after evie was born i just remember thinking why on earth is there a patriarchy i'm just like men are just so much like i couldn't do that <laughs> i'm just like men are so much weaker uh, oh my uh, or at least I am so much weaker than my wife. How mm -hmm. on earth do, does anyone do that? But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think talking about women for a second, you know, maybe a hundred years ago or so, nearly all men and, and many women thought that a woman's place was in the home, child rearing. It wasn't in business or politics. Today, we laugh at that idea. However, there's that shift is there are ramifications. There's effects, causes and effects from that. And one of them is when you tell a young woman in particular that she needs to strive to be president or you know CEO of some company, I think that's amazing to set that, uh, to let them know, to let young women know that they can achieve those things. But this, the pendulum, it is a pendulum. And on the other end of this pendulum is pressure equal to men. So saying, you know, you have to, you, if you're not CEO of a company, if you're not, you know, doctor or lawyer, like putting in 60 plus hours a week, then you're not enough. And then you also have to be a mother and you also have to be a wife and you also have to put food on a table. It's interesting how as a society, we've kind of developed this voice to say, this is what we expect of women. Is it fair to put men and women at an equal measuring sticks for success? I, I don't know the answer. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't really have any strong views on this, but I think it's a conversation worth having uh, you know, collectively as a society before it becomes a stigma, just kind of openly accepting like child rearing is so important. You know, The future of our society depends on the types of environments our children get when they are raised. So two stressed out people working 60 hours a week, like that doesn't, that's, it may be very productive for the economy. I don't know interesting i suppose my my take on this is that i think you're definitely right the pendulum has swung towards uh, a really great equal opportunities and trying to promote equal career progression i think one thing that society hasn't done enough is it feels like it's still very difficult for dads to normalize dads being very heavily involved in the rearing of their children 
And that's something that I really feel strongly about. I'd be the first to admit that, you know, my wife works close to full time. Yeah, I work more than full time. Lots of productivity in the Santhrosanan household, but a lot of stress as well and lots of difficult challenges in balancing work. But I do think that we've got a long way to go in normalizing the activity of dads in child rearing. You know, it's funny you were saying about working with children. I actually, again, this is probably a testament to how good a sleeper Evie was. I actually used to take Evie in to the office when she was like one month old, right? I would get up early. I'm an early riser, uh, you know, like lots of founders are. I'd be up early. I'd beat my daughter out of bed. Uh, I'd be like, you're not getting me this time, Evie. I'm up first. And then I'd zip her into the office at like six in the morning, right? And she'd sleep two, three hours while I was working. And then as Sarah would come, Sarah was on maternity leave. She'd come and get the baby. It's like, this is great. I'm crushing it. And then Evie, of course, caught wind of that and ruined it by completely disavowing any sort of regular sleep pattern. <laughs> but I do think there's a lot to be said in, uh, about the flexible work-life fit to get men much more involved in this. I think it's, um, it's not easy. There are no easy answers. I'd love to pull back to you and a little bit about the amazing generalist skill set you have. So you've worked on point of sale tech, senior care. Now you're running a, a recruitment talent company. How does something like this happen? So what attracts you to an idea where you don't necessarily have like a super deep knowledge of the subject? So the first thing that I worked on was called AirPair. The idea at the time back in 2013 was to connect people on flights ahead of time so that they could choose who they sit next to based on their interests. And it could be business interests, it could be dating interests, it could be interest interests and whatever kind of hobby you're into. And we did a, uh, a flight that we had uh, like our setup at the airport and we did a virgin flight from Los Angeles to Vegas and people could choose and it was, it was a lot of fun. And that, that idea came from, it's always a spark. It's like, oh, that's a thing. That's a thing that could be better. And here's a parallel. So I think I think this is true in art and entrepreneurship very similarly in that you see one thing that's profound and beautiful and useful and efficient and then and then people are using it and it's working and it's it's making money or getting views depending on what it is and then you see another thing another area that has a parallel type of situation but doesn't have that kind of organization to it so that's a pretty abstract way I'm describing it but you know in the case of like Uber, right? We always hear these examples, Uber for something else. Well, people are taking the abstract nature of what Uber is, which is ordering things from my phone to me. And then they're saying, oh, but I could do Uber for food or Uber for my car or Uber for this or that. And that's kind of how we think as people. We're like, oh, this pattern of pushing a button on my phone and getting stuff to me, that works for cars and toothpaste and mobile repair and everything else. So I think that's kind of, that's how I think. I see a thing that works well in a particular area and I think, oh, that's, let's take that and map it on. So let me give you another example is I talked to a guy last week who is running a, a company and they are matching podcast hosts with great guests. So if you want to be a guest on a podcast, you can sign up and enter your interests and background and things and your schedule. And then they match them with people like you and I who host podcasts. Well, that's great because you know that's a problem as a podcast host is like finding great people to talk to. And so it's, oh, okay, so it's a matchmaking service based on interests. And why is that a problem? Because there's not a, an efficient market there. And so that's true in dating. And you could see that with like Tinder and Hinge. There's a lot of these parallels. So I think the key is what's the parallel? What's going on as human nature and technology evolves what is now possible and then taking that mapping it on so in my case like mapping onto the airline industry and people could choose where they want to sit like there's freedom and transparency to be able to do that or in home care marketplaces are a massive you know with airbnb paving the way for the concept of a marketplace we're taking 
excess unused inefficient inventory of in the case of Airbnb, which is houses or an Uber, which is cars sitting on the side of the street. And then you're matching it with people who, who want that service using technology. And so that's kind of the mental model I have for marketplaces and how I started Home Hero, which is there's a lot of great caregivers that don't have the ability to connect with people who want to hire them. If we built this tool, we, we could increase that transparency and efficiency. Then it comes to doing it. Oh, another conversation. But yeah, that's kind of how I, how I think about it. You're right. It's kind of frameworks. You know, if you've got a framework for a marketplace, you can have different sides of that marketplace for across many different industries. It's frameworks and it's also trends. So like my brother started this company called Cameo. He's a founder CTO there. Cameo is quite large now. And they allow people to book celebrities or social media influencers on their platform. So it's a matchmaking service. The key insight there when they started the company was that this is a new framework of connecting people, supply and demand, but also this is a big wave happening. As a society, as a global society, we're moving away from centralized social medias to decentralized. You know, everyone now is a social media influencer. When that happens, how does how does that change things? How do people want to connect and countless ways, tools and platforms and marketplaces? So it's like trends combined with frameworks. Awesome. Taking that over to the dad side of things, how do you think about learning and mastery in your children? So, you know, would you rather Leo be really great at lots of things or world-class at one thing? He's got a startup dad. He will have insights into the world of startups in a way that lots of people don't. You know, how do you think about that? I think I don't want to intervene too much. My experience as a kid in that the people who influenced me the most were the people who just acted in a way that was natural to them. They didn't try to influence me or deliberately tell me what to do, but they pursued what they found interesting. And then when I asked them about it, they told me about it. So I, I like that philosophy. Like, do you, continue to do you, and trust that your children will observe you carefully and ask you about the things that they find interesting in. I actually, when I ask founders about this, I always get a really strong mix of responses where some people are like, you're either gonna go to university or start a startup. And then I get other founders who are a lot more like you are like, actually, you know, you just gotta follow your interests and your passions and it will come from that, right? Yeah, I certainly see that people I respect have been more stern, you know, in my own personal life, like grandparents who have like, no, you're going to college. You know, you're putting you're putting your foot down and saying you're doing this. You know, I don't know that it's better or worse. It has impacts, you know, one way or the other. One is a bit more guiding. The other one's like choose your own adventure story. Amazing. Mike, so before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you the question that I ask to every guest. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you'd like to pass on to your kids? What's the biggest lesson? Oh, it's so difficult to distill it down. I, I think if there's one lesson. It's uh, taking the first step. A lot of people I see have dreams, but don't take the first step. So just take the first step in whatever it is. Take a first step and reflect. Don't be intimidated by the grand big vision, whether it's putting your running shoes on in the morning. Like the hardest part is always the first step. Turn your brain off, do that first step and get that over with. Then, then think about it. Less thinking, more doing. Advice that applies to fatherhood and startup life. So perfect way for us to wrap up. Well, Mike, look, thank you so much for coming on the show. That's been an amazing, completely different from my expectations show. I absolutely loved it. We close up with our regular feature, Startup Shoutouts, where we shine a light on organizations in the startup community. So startups, entrepreneurs, founders, you know, that we admire. Startup Shoutouts. 
Uh, who's your startup shout out today, Mike? I really want to shout out Sean Kumar, who's the CEO of Rhythm360. This is a founder I've been working with and I know very personally, and he's building an amazing tool to help cardiac centers. So it's like a software for people who are have cardiac issues and go to a cardiac center. His tools can make everything more efficient, that whole process from patients behind the scenes with doctors. So big shout out to Rhythm360. Super, super cool. And my startup shout out this week, slightly less honorable, but incredibly important still. It's a startup called Mighty. They're building a new way of browsing the internet, a browser a version of Chrome that actually runs on a computer in the cloud and is streamed effectively like a remote desktop, but super high performance internet browsing. Our startup HX is a cloud technology software. And one of the things that we don't realize is our number one application that most of us use on a day-to-day basis is our browser. And if it's slow or doesn't perform well, actually, that can have a massive impact on us doing our jobs. And it's a really cool idea to not have to upgrade your computer because actually your browser runs in the cloud and it's always up to date, just like a software if you run a software as a service business. So that's the startup shout out I'm doing today. Well, look, Mike, before we go, absolutely amazing to have you on the show. I really enjoyed being a guest on your great podcast a few weeks ago. You know, what are you working on right now that our listeners should hear about? I work uh, on a company called Otter Labs. So Otter is a company that I started a few years ago where we help startup founders and CTOs find engineers in South America. So I, I found one of the most difficult parts of being a startup founder is hiring engineers specifically. And I thought if I could solve this problem for founders, that would be really fulfilling to me. And it would also be very useful for the world, especially now as we go completely remote and people across the world are joining into sort of global teams. It's been really fun. It's been a real enjoyable experience. We have 700 developers on our bench that we've screened and interviewed and worked with dozens of of clients so far, startup founders, startup companies. So yeah, the website is hireotter.com. And uh, I love doing it. I can definitely testify that hiring, particularly in the engineering space, one of the hardest problems in building a startup. I didn't realize that I should have started hiring three years before I set up my startup. Yeah, it's uh, 100% really, really valuable, important thing for the world to do. Brilliant. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at StartupDadsPod. 